chair. <clears throat> hey, this is the DM Discourse, a podcast about D&D focused on the experience at the table from behind the screen. I'm your host, Daryl, and today we're continuing a series of episodes based around the classic module Against the Cult of the Reptile God. The party has just arrived in Orlane, where every direction they go will certainly lead to peril. month since Dorian and I have taken up residence in the village of Orlane. Our base of operations is close to the Golden Grain Inn, where we suspect the obfuscator agent Desley to be operating out of. Our initial suspicions proved false. It does not appear that the prison wizard's lackeys are responsible for the problems here. Unfortunately, that means it could be something worse, at least speaking in terms of immediate threat. Nobody has discovered our cause for being here, Yet, but I only suspect it is a matter of time. Of the villagers, I can think only of a handful that I'm certain aren't part of the secret cult in town. That list doesn't include the priestess, her clergy, or most of the villagers. It does, however, include the strange hermit residing in the grove on the western side of town. He's unfriendly and isn't keen on seeing us about other matters. Seems to have other things on his mind, whatever they may be. Dorian is more worried about the obfuscator's presence than I am of the locals. It's been decades since the prison wizard sent his agents this far south into the swamplands, and Desley seems to go in and out of the inn as he pleases. Dorian suspects the obfuscator is also not under the spell or charm affecting the townsfolk. In that case, we'll need to keep an even closer eye on him to figure out his true purpose here. If the information we've collected is true, He's been in town about half a year now, leaving on occasion for other business than returning afterwards. We'll want to catch him on his way out of town next time it happens. Can't risk whatever he's gathering to get out again, especially if it has to do with the state of Orlane. With any luck, we can track him down and figure out where the obfuscators are operating out of in this area as well. But hell, with countless miles of untrackable and unmappable marsh, it'll be hard to get into once we do know where it is located. I'm not sure how much longer we'll be staying here. The strange rumors have led to a number of surrounding farmers leaving, and traders have started to avoid this place like the plague. If this keeps up, it won't be long until the neighboring Fens Keep loses a critical trade partner, one of the few outlets it has to export goods to places outside the Drifting Isles. That may work to our advantage, allow us to retake Fens Keep back from the bandit rulers, and put a proper tower marshal in charge of it once more. Plans for the future, though. For now, Dorian and I will continue to trade shifts, watching the inn in hopes that the obfuscator slips up. Long live the line of Braddock. May the Dawn Guard see it returned to the Sun Throne of Roelnar. There's a lot to like about using modules for your campaign. 
especially some of the older ones from previous editions. For one, it offers a glimpse into the game from a different perspective than you yourself may be approaching it from. I know that's certainly true for me. I come from a video game background, so when I first cracked the spines of my 4th edition books, that's what I drew from. Fairly linear narrative with captivating set pieces and an attempt to enthrall and captivate my friends. Of course, like much anything you do the first time, it's never going to go off without a hitch. I'm sure I could go on for a while about my first D&D campaign. Hell, I've even still got the notes around on a hard drive somewhere. I wrote entire paragraphs to read to my friends while they simply waited for the next thing to happen. I've looked at them before, and I assure you, the notes and the writings, the paragraphs, are not great. If anything, it's just spawned from having too much time between classes and procrastinating assignments than genuine originality. And originality is kind of a funny thing when it comes to D&D anyway, because so much of it happens in a shared cosmology. That preconceived notion about the game, uh, what it is, and what will occur at the table. There's a mythology ingrained into the very DNA of the hobby that allows us to work off uh, of a fundamental core ideas and ultimately expand from. Not everything you play at the table has to be new to be exciting, and not everything exciting is new. That's not to say there's anything wrong with innovation, particularly when it comes to the game, but there's a certain comfort in the culture presented in the writings of the forebears of this hobby that we're all so passionate about. That was my biggest takeaway from running N1 against the cult of the reptile god. There are many different ways to play, different ways to run, and for a long time I had those first habits ingrained in my style from my first game. The games I ran in college were a lot like each other, and it wasn't until this most recent campaign I started branching out and experimenting with things that stuck with me. I think a lot of it has to do with the more modern cultural adaptation or evolution of D&D, what with the ability to see so many different types of games and be more acutely aware of how people are playing the game. There's been bulletin boards and forums for ages past, but until you can really see how people are playing the game at their table, it doesn't quite capture what your idea in your head is generated when you're reading someone recounting the stories about how their character fell down a pitfall trap and the DM didn't let them make any kind of saving roll against it. So in the spirit of trying to shake things up, I ran my first AD&D module for the game's latest edition. And right out of the gate, you get the sense that this module was from a different culture of the game. You've got NPC stats shoved into shorthand, explicit to locations of their treasure for, I guess, your kleptomaniac players, um, and dense text throughout the entirety of the module. Also, probably one too many dungeon rooms, but that's just my personal preference. You can draw the historical lineage of the game to back to things like this, and I'm sure this one module doesn't speak for the entirety of those released at the time. But there is a certain flavor to it that I don't think you find in any of the more recent products released under the official WotC banner. That's not to say that there aren't those that are related. In fact, um, I've run both uh, the original i6 Ravenloft module as well as an updated version of Castle Ravenloft that I took out of the Curse of Strahd book. Both of them similar in flavor, but having their own variations that really highlight the differences of how the game used to be played and what kinds of things we want out of it these days. Again, that's also not to say that you can't um, customize it yourself for what you're trying to do. But for the culture at large, I think it shows a really different school of thought. And that's not to say that there aren't other third-party creators as well, 
who are creating adventures in the same vein as the old days, a number of which I've flipped through but never quite made it to the table. Um, but I'm <laughs> losing track of myself and uh, need to get back to talking about actually what did happen in the campaign. Um, so as far as N1 goes, the module itself is well formatted, separated by different locations and events the players could possibly get into. Unlike more narrative modules and adventures, Against the Cult of the Reptile God seems more content to present areas for players to investigate as they try to solve the mystery of what exactly is going on in the village of Orlane. That mystery of locked doors and frightened faces, strange rumors and abandoned homesteads was at the center of my players' reasoning for being here. Of course, they had, out of character, accepted it as a quest to level up, to go back to the main dungeon they were exploring, but were to be rewarded in character as well nonetheless, in more ways than they expected. I presented the players with an empty map of the place, just so they could know the landscape. It had the buildings, but no numbering or descriptions that you usually find in the module when you uh, open it up and look at all the important information for you to run it. But this was just so the players would have to go out of their way to interact with villagers to figure out what was going on around here. They were strangers, weren't familiar with the territory at all. It started simple enough, docking the boat along the river left to the care of Zictanil and Brog, along with the newfound Melawa child. The module assumes your characters approach from the road to the west so that they can have interaction with some of the locals and give a depiction of the... Uh, terror that's transpiring, but for my Swampland campaign, they were instead met by abandoned, decrepit, and foul-smelling homes coming in from the south. The players decided to make their way into town past the empty buildings, but should they have investigated them, it would have given the party an idea earlier on what was plaguing or laying. It's one of the little magical things I'd say about uh, N1 is that no matter which way your party decides to go, there's some kind of revelation for them to discover. For these particular buildings here, there were, of course, you could suspect dangers lurking in the shadows and dank places that they could poke their noses in, um, but that didn't happen, at least not in this time. Instead, they started going down a path that ended up much more dramatic than a simple combat encounter once they arrive in the village. They met an overly friendly Vesrin couple, Galen and Julen Weaver. Galen and Julen Weaver were newlyweds in town, having just moved here, not yet themselves affected by the dangers lurking in town. They were happy themselves to have folk to talk to and share a glass of wine with. The players really took a shine to them. Although I'm not quite sure why, I gave them some thick southern accents, uh, the best that I could, <laughs> but it did end up just gravitating towards a more normal conversation of locations around the town and the type of people they could expect to run into. Chitu even commissioned a kind of harness for the child so they could carry it around when they needed to. It may also have had to do with them being the first veteran NPCs that the um, players had encountered of the campaign. For the most part, I'd stuck with humans, dwarves, elves, the usual races, and other than Skaji the Cleric, there weren't any of these other bat folk that they encountered yet. Whatever the reason, I'm glad they took a shine to them. It was nice to play some genuinely friendly characters for them to talk to. <laughs> um, and the Weavers weren't, you know, completely uh, unhelpful. In fact, they were the opposite. They were quite helpful. Um, they gave the party two bits of important information. The location of the inns in town, the Golden Grain Inn, and the Inn of the Slumbering Serpent. Either would have been where I wanted the players to go, so that's just the information I gave them. They probably could have gone off to the Temple of Merica, which is the name of the actual temple and deity depicted in the module. 
Um, I probably could have just reskinned it to have my own Pantheon, as well as given the inns different names, which is something easily that you could adjust if you just have a different flavor, or if you want to, um, I guess, kind of mask that you're running a module from the players, or maybe if it's one that they played before. But for this, I just decided to incorporate it into my existing campaign, and uh, I guess instance of Orlane that exists there. For example, the deity Merica I just made into a saint for Arawi, the sun god in my campaign. But in, of course, they could have gone off and investigated the other dozen locations here with oddly descriptive paragraphs of text for such places as a small, neatly kept cottage or run-down farmhouse. And that's something that's immediately nice to be running with modules or other supplements for locations. Should your players go down the path you lay before them, great. You're all set because you know what the adventure is and where it's going to go. The same for running your own adventure. If maybe your friends are inclined to get up to a bit of mischief or have their own prerogatives, also great. That paragraph of the shabby farmhouse and barn will come in handy real quick, especially if you don't have it prepared offhand like you might not in a home adventure. The locations here aren't just for show, though, as they might be in other sources you could pull from. There's a core element in this first part of the module while the players explore the village of Orlane aptly titled Cult Members, printed in bold and in exclamation points so you never miss it. The villain of the module, Explicita Defilus, a spirit naga, has put a number of villagers under her spell, willing to do her bidding. This includes capturing the player characters, if they aren't careful. Uh, but for my group at the moment in time, they decided to go ahead and take a look at the Golden Grain Inn. It was about noon, so they were looking for some food, as it was, so simply strolled across the main street in town to, uh, from where the Weaver's house was to the inn. The Golden Grain Inn is actually one of the key points in the game, going so far as to get its own section of the module as well as a map. And it's not just because it's a comfy place for your players to rest at. Odds are good that, if they aren't snooping around elsewhere, this will be the first place they get any idea of what's going on here. Arguably, you could make this the only inn in town, or at least the inn that the players find out about it, but I wasn't too afraid that the party wouldn't stick their head in through the barn doors to see what was going on. Their entrance to the Golden Grain Inn started out simple enough, as the ragtag group of a bat person, a tiefling person, an owl person, a dwarf person, and a human person walked into a room, all eyes of the hypnotized locals turned on them, then quickly back to their cups. The bartender and proprietor, Bertram Besswill, had the chief cook, Root, quickly put together a few drugged drinks to give to the party when they inevitably asked for some. They were budding heroes just going through town. What was the worst that could happen to them? I think at this point it was still safe to say that my players trusted me to not put them into any peril that I didn't think they were capable of handling. I still think that's true of how I run the game. I just might have a poorer estimation of their capabilities now that they've gone up higher in levels. But it wasn't just the villagers slash cult members they had to worry about. Going back many, many sessions ago to the Cross River Inn where the dwarf monk Pedwar ran into three members of the Obfuscators, nefarious agents of guile and trickery in service to the prison wizard, there was one in particular with sly eyes and shifty hands named Desley, and he was also present in the tavern. The players hadn't run into the Obfuscators since that incident, and even weren't really aware of who exactly the prison wizard was. Sure, they were the ruler of the kingdom to the north bordering the swamp, but the party didn't know them from Mordenkainen. As far as they were concerned, they were below the radar for obfuscators. Such was the case, too. Desley didn't even recognize the party members, although Pedwar certainly did. 
He whispered to Skiji about the agent's presence and together made their way quietly up the staircase to the rooms in hopes of tracking down this obfuscator. Sure, they didn't know much about the organization, but if their past experience was enough to speak for it, it could probably lead them to more answers than they had now. He went down without much of a fight, too. Pedwar pulled a classic on him, having him come close to the door before bashing it straight into him, sendling Desley turtling to the ground. A few swift punches and smart tactics by the players, and they had the agent right where they wanted. Of course, he didn't give any answers out of the kindness of his heart, something Skiji expected and responded with in force. By heating up his emblem of his god Ulmund, a giant eye, he burnt a scar straight into Desley's face until he gave them the answers they were looking for. The villagers were charmed by the Naga, explicit to Defilus. At least some, he said. But that was the extent of his knowledge. He's here collecting information and funds, but after this incident, you bet he won't be around for long. Right on cue, the situation downstairs changed into a bloodbath. At least it would have, if Pedwar and Skajid didn't immediately show up as it all started. A tavern brawl is a classic to fall back on. A tavern brawl against a bunch of bloodthirsty villagers? It could have gone much worse than it did. They were outnumbered, and not even sure how to tell which villagers were charmed and which were true believers, if any. The trio who had stayed downstairs had even had drinks too, which poisoned them, making them much less effective for this fight. In a moment of doubt and fear, Antonio shouted to Skiji to cut down the cook Root, who was attacking him with his cutting knife, only for Skiji to deliver a crushing blow to Root's ribs, lethally killing him. As the light began to fade from his eyes, he simply asked the cleric, Why? Skiji knew what he had done. He had killed an innocent, blood on his hands. He hadn't a moment to regret his actions, for as the villagers fell, a veritable horde of troglodytes emerged from the basement of the inn. There are these hulking, broad-shouldered reptilians whose biggest characteristic is that they don't smell nice. It was in this moment that Desley descended from the rooftops, his info and gold in hand, and left the village for good. If the players tried to stop them, they would have let whatever these creatures were unleashed on the town, something our heroes could not abide. The tricky thing about troglodytes, as I said, is that they have an overwhelming stench. In 5th edition, if you start your turn adjacent to them, you have to make a save against being poisoned that doesn't wear off until the creature's next turn. In a cramped tavern, this was less than an ideal situation. Troglodytes proved a pretty good encounter, I'd say, and definitely one you could adapt to a home game if you have a lot of melee players who are having perhaps a bit too easy time against the hordes of enemies that you're throwing at them. The nice thing too about troglodytes that you'll see is that they tie very well to the other similarly scaled enemies of the monster manual throughout the rest of the adventure. Thankfully though, the party did overcome this challenge. It wasn't going to be the hardest one they faced, but it came at them unexpectedly. I think even if players knew that there were cultists in town, they wouldn't have expected the entire tavern to turn on them and for other monsters to come up from the basement. That's a good surprise as well you can keep in your pocket for any encounter, I think, whatever the situation is. If your players don't expect it to go sideways so early, let them know that's always a possibility. The most unexpected surprise was for me, however. After the troglodytes had been dealt with, Skiji returned to the body of the cook, Root. It was too late for anything to be done for him. He, a priest of the all-seeing god, had taken the life of an innocent because in weakness he thought he knew better. He could not see the truth. So as his code led him to do, he walked outside of the tavern and surrendered himself to the constable Grover Ruskadal, who had just arrived on the scene. 
Sakaji admitted to his crime openly, and the vile intent of the constable was written upon his face. The rest of the party knew wiser than to get into another fight against a number of armed and healthy guards, so they retreated out the back of the tavern, which led along the river and ran into two individuals who wished to aid them in town, Dorian and Llewellyn, twin elves bearing the insignia of the Don Guard. With nowhere else to turn, they followed these surprise allies to, hopefully, safety, where they could plan on what to do next. And that's where we'll leave it. The party's in a bit of a sticky situation, but that's normal for an adventurer's life. I won't give anything away about how the rest of the adventure goes, so be sure to come back next week to hear the exciting tale of how they rescue their friend, or not, and start to trek down the source of the town's woes. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments or concerns or whatnot, feel free to email me at dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach me at Twitter, or on Twitter, at dmdcpodcast. As always, take care, and have a great week.